Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton, PhD, and your host on Get Down to College Business. I'm joined today by Steve Taylor, EDD, the Vice President of Student Life at Concordia University. Steve not only oversees the many usual functions in student affairs, but he also oversees financial aid. So he has a rich perspective, everyone catch that, on the cost of student services. And here's a fun fact. Steve actually has my old job, and we've been co-workers for a long time now. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me here. Yeah, glad to have you. So you're here to talk primarily about student services, which includes wellness, health centers, athletics, activities, other extracurriculars. But we know they cost a lot, right? Student life has so many benefits for students. It builds community. It provides leadership opportunities. And of course, it fosters those academic extensions outside of the classroom. However, these experiences don't come cheap. Part or most of that cost of student services is passed down to students via tuition and fees. So could colleges save money by reducing student services and offering them as an a la carte option for students? Steve Taylor is going to walk us through a model that is similar to the low-cost model used by Frontier Airlines. So Steve, I want to start today with your dual responsibilities in student life and financial aid. Those two functions aren't normally combined in higher ed structures, and it kind of gives you that unique perspective on finances. Can you tell us a little bit about your leadership journey? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate your introduction. So my journey started very typical for a student affairs person. I I, uh, was an RA as an undergrad, then I went to the normal route of being a hall director in grad school, director of student housing. That's where my career kind of took a left turn is uh, took an opportunity to become the director of financial aid and did that for about a decade. Financial aid was a wonderful experience for me, teaching me how a university operates. You get a lot of sense of some of the regulation, but also get a real sense on items like discounting and really the true cost of net revenue and what it actually costs to to educate a student. So what uh, I was able to do was take a lot of my student affairs background and incorporate that into, um, I think, a very high-functioning financial aid office. And then in about uh, 2015, when I became the vice president, I kept that in my portfolio and have continued to treat financial aid as a student service, which is a little different than maybe some schools, but we still very much, at you know, being at a private institution, have to use financial aid in a very significant way in terms of, of our, our fiscal model for success. Yeah, and I think that's one of the parts about your background that really intrigues me is that you have these two sides. I think when I was in student affairs and I had come out of academics, people thought I was unusual to go from (laughs) academics to student affairs and now I'm back on the academic side again. And so you also have a very kind of diverse background of experiences. So I want to turn now to the student services cost model because that's really what I want to pick your brain about. But let's start with Give us a sense of how much it costs to have a thriving student services experience for our traditional students. So when you think of our traditional students, we tend to think of, you know, the 18 to 20 something probably lives on campus, maybe commutes. But could you quantify that for us? How much does it cost per student? Sure. You know, every school is going to be a little bit different. But when you start looking at the total expenses, and this is just on the student service side. So this is, you know, we're 
you know, if we talk about residence life, we're not talking about maintenance. We're not talking about utilities, but we are talking about your RAs. We're talking about your counseling, your health center, all those sorts of pieces, your student athletics, intramurals. It talks thousands of dollars a year, you know, somewhere probably between three and $4,000 a year is what we're spending on a traditional undergrad student. Now, each student. Each student, right. You know, it, it's certainly much more expensive for an undergrad and much more expensive for a resident student, but that's essentially what it costs. And it's it's kind of a hidden number because, and how we're trying to break this apart today is that the model that we have right now in higher ed is everything, it's in the all-inclusive package. You come to an institution, you pay a certain amount, and you get all these amenities. And we have a lot of conflicting things going on. One of those is this arms race, right? So universities are trying to build better fitness centers and have more of this and more of that. And you go to different schools that are similar to, to where we, we were, and they don't break that up. They just kind of continue added into that, that old model that we're currently living in, which is driving the price up. And then you have issues of trying to be price competitive, and then you get into issues where institutions are not truly getting, you know, the expense that they, or the, the revenue or the value that they probably should. And so you just really are, are kind of in somewhat a failing model to support yourself, especially schools that don't have large endowments or other sources of revenue to support that. And so hence, you know, where, where we've had some conversations of what would it look like if, you flip that around and you started looking at it more, we were saying a la carte. And as we were talking before this, you know, I used the example of Frontier Airlines. And, and part of it was I was just looking and had seen something, I think, I think, on, you know, the most reliable source of all time, Facebook, about Frontier was offering this program that for $600, you could get a ticket, unlimited airline for a year. And you start looking into it and start thinking a little bit more about their business model, which is cheap ticket. But then, but that doesn't really supply even everything you need to get off the ground in that there's an additional cost on everything. And so if we look at universities and we look at, you know, these different amenities that we have, we could talk about, you know, living on campus. We bundle in all the amenities that if we lived in a home, we'd have broken apart utilities, you know, water, electricity, things like cable television, things like internet, you know, uh, garbage service, laundry service all these things that we just bundle together and some students use them, some don't use them. And, you know, especially a food service, another example, you know, that you contract with a big food service company that's going to have a model that says we're going to feed everyone and, you know, there's significant expense and we're going to just apply it amongst, amongst everyone. Then you'd also take things like our health center, our counseling, which are services a lot of schools, you know, continue to bundle as well. You know, at Concordia, most of those services don't cost a student anything else. But yet we're spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to these school, uh, to these programs, these resources. You know, there's somewhat of a fear, I think, sometimes as you kind of shift this model, what the impact could be. But if you were to strip them away, what your net cost is going to be considerably less. And then the student could pick and choose what they wanted and have more control over their dollars than what we were doing right now. Okay, so let's stay with this idea. So we're talking about traditional students primarily, and we'll, we'll come back to non-traditional students later. But when we think about our traditional students, it's very common for all of these services, extracurriculars, that all-inclusive package to be built into the cost of tuition and fees. So every student most likely is paying that same price, whether or not they use any services or attend any activities. I think about the commuter student who may only show up for classes and leave. What about if you broke that down? So we, instead of that all-inclusive model, we offer the buffet or the a la carte option. 
talk me about through whether that could actually work at the type of institution that we think of with, you know, the, the private school model, the, you know, the residential students. Could that work? Could we find reduction in costs if we figured out a different student services cost model? Oh, I, th- I think so. And I think it would be really bucking the trend. And I think it's an opportunity too. and this is something we didn't talk about beforehand, but something I've thought about, and this has a lot of opportunity, I think, for public partner, private partnerships. So, you know, what would it look like instead of having a fitness center, you try to partner with a local fitness center that's, you negotiate space on campus. And then instead of you know, having a fitness center, you fund 100% that everyone, everyone can use, right? You have a chain that comes in and puts their own space in that also could maybe even have community members buy memberships as well. And so then only those who want it are using it, right? So a lot more outsourcing. Could be, sure, for sure. And a lot more partners in that way that uh, have models to kind of cool that cost. Some of this stuff is happening already in some schools. I think let's shift, we'll get back to residential living. Let's go back to the support services of health and counseling for instance. So those are two programs where some schools have already outsourced those resources. Maybe they have a clinic on campus that's a that's a public-private entity or even counseling. Some are having more fee-based services and some are really trying to leverage student insurance too. A ways to kind of shift that cost off of your books, having only those that use those services actually paying for them and again trying to make that actual cost to entry less. Because I think, you know, there's such great fear about this cost. And if you're able to show, you know, the cost of being much less, you know, it becomes more appealing, get much more competitive. Again, the frontier example. Now, that's not a perfect example because a lot of people talk about their customer service and their satisfaction isn't as great. But but the model of the idea is we're going to sell just the basic token. You want an education. Here's the education. Oh, now you want all these other things to make it this greater experience. Okay, fine. But you're going to more pick and choose that and choose it as you need. So right now, most schools and ours included, tickets for students are free. So if you want to go to a sporting event or even our our drama, you know, that's, that's included too. So what if that was shifted around where we didn't have that expectation, but if you wanted to go to a football game, there was a ticket. Now, bigger schools where they have sellouts and that's a different thing, but just speaking to this, this sort of size institution, you know, that's, that's the case as well. So I kind of like the idea on paper. Right. right, right. (laughs) You know, we talk about lowering expenses, figuring out ways to then, you know, make fees and tuitions less for students. And therefore it's more affordable. Right. Then you're not passing down all these extra costs to students. However, I'm guessing there's a whole nother side to this. Right. The student experience, the student shows up and they want to go to the movie night and they want to go to casino night and they want to join in the intramurals and do all the other fun stuff and have all the things they can walk down to the free clinic down the hallway from their dorm hall. What do you give it up? What do you got to sacrifice if you do sort of this a la carte kind of outsourced model? Yeah, sir. I, and we'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't spend time talking about this because, you know, on one hand, we're looking at a balance sheet and trying to look at a business model f- for higher ed. On the other side of the equation, we have a bunch of 18-year-old kids. I use that word intentionally. I have a son who's a freshman in college, and so I, I have a pretty firsthand glimpse on, on how they operate. And so if we were to go to a model like this, what's going to happen is a couple things. First of all, students are not going to participate at the same rate because there's a some sort of barrier to their participation. It, it's cost. You have more of a separation between the haves and haves not. And then 
we'll go back to, because we're both educators, we have to do, we go back to student development theory. And if we think of something like Tinto, who talks about, you know, that students need to be engaged and involved. And if they're not, they're not going to do as well in their studies. They're not going to retain as much. And so I think that always has been one of the reasons why institutions try to have this model. There's easier access, and they know that students are going to be more successful if they if they engage and have them. You know, there's a lot of students who have minor mental health concerns, and bouts with depression, and a little bit of support from a counseling center can get them over the hump and be successful. So mid-year through their freshman year, they're struggling with this. They don't want to pay for it, so they leave, versus if they had a little bit of, of support, now they're here four years and graduate. Now, some of that, it's tough. I think one of one of the other challenging parts, Sarah, is how do you analyze what is enough? We talk about the academic side. It's really easy to calculate how many professors you need for how many students, how many classes. It's a pretty easy equation. You get into student services, and it's really gray on a good day. What is enough? What do you need to spend? And And most people in my seat say as many dollars as I can get. Because no matter what you give me, I can provide something that's going to be of value and support students in, in a significant way or an important way. It's a really, you know, difficult questions about, about where, the, you know, where that is. One of the things that we didn't talk about was in, kind of in, in specifically is intercollegiate athletics. So at a major division, so I'm going to compare UW-Madison to Concordia University, which is, you know, no different than WLC or any other uh, NAC school, so your small private schools. First of all, if you're a high school student athlete and you want to play in college, please don't overlook D3. It's an amazing place. It's it's great experience. You're going to enjoy it. It's more competitive than you think, and it's, it's something I, I can't talk highly enough about, but it's really expensive. And so, some students have this notion that universities make money off of, of athletics, right? Unless you're in a major division one where you have TV contracts and 80,000 seats in a football stadium, you know, you're selling tickets for a hundred dollars a pop, you're selling concessions and you're, you're not actually making money. It's a, it's a relatively expensive endeavor uh, to run a division three athletic program. You've got coaches and uniforms and facilities and travel. And right now, my goodness, the travel costs is, is insane, you know, buses and and things. So, you know, you look at that. What if you were to have student athletes pay extra to participate? You know, that you could do that because, you know, a lot of these students are used to being in clubs and, and other opportunities where they're having to pay all the way through to participate. But again, is that so much of a barrier? People aren't going to do that. Like, you know, there's, there's a, there's a tipping point on that. You don't know where you don't know where that is and there's there's some con, you know you have concerns about that. I'll throw one example from my days when I was in Res Life. So when I was in Res Life, we used to have and I'm sure when you were a student this is the same way too is laundry used to be uh, coin operated laundry. You, you know the most coveted thing you could have was a jar of quarters, right? Don't you know these you hit them because you don't want your roommate to find them, but not that is the value of it, but just the fact you had quarters and and doing laundry. And so that was something we did. And then there was some revenue or it wasn't the expense, but even that was something that was saw as a barrier became non-competitive, you know, that all, every other school was doing this. So then you shifted away. Okay. We're just, now we're just going to take a hundred dollar fee and just include it into, to the cost. So we've actually seen the direction away from that. And I think what you're hinting at is that kind of backlash against feeling like you're being nickeled and dimed. 
right? Like just just give me one price tag and I kind of want to pay for it versus, oh, I got to go pay for my laundry. I got to go pay to join the baseball team. I got to go pay to go to movie night. Like just put it on my tab, right? Is there is it that kind of a, some people just don't like the nickel and dime. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a criticism that a lot of times we'll point to UW schools. So UW schools have a mandatory tuition rate, but they are heavy on fees. And so that's, Again, that becomes that selling point. Hey, it, it's, this price is for everything. You know, that all-inclusive vacation is is part of that fiscal model too. But like we were saying before, it probably artificially makes that price point higher than it might need to be. So tell me about the type of institution you could foresee this a la carte model working at. So maybe it's not for the traditional residential experience, but are there types of institutions where this could actually fly and be a benefit and serve students well? I think so. I think there are certain students that are very budget conscious and that are looking for an experience, but they want more control. I don't think that's the typical student, but they're out there. And it certainly could be students who are traditional age. It could be students that are residential But these are students that also are probably going to want to pick the type of environment they live in. Residence halls, right? Everything's the same. Now, there's some, sometimes schools have a little bit of variance, but they're all the same. They all cost the same. But we know, like in an off-campus model, people are choosing where they live. Sometimes it's very much based on cost. I can put five of my best friends in this little, you know, dumpy apartment and we can, you know, save money, which isn't always the case. When I was in financial aid, we used to have a conversation this time of the year all the time about is it really cheaper or not cheaper, right? There's a lot of incidentals, your trans- transportation, parking, utilities, all the things that we bundle. When you unbundle those, sometimes that's that's not the best. But I think I think there is. And I think especially for students that are pretty particular in what they're looking for, a student who maybe has a more narrow range of needs wants and for a student who's willing to search out some of those that aren't necessarily just campus-based. No school can serve everyone's needs and so often students will find those those co-curricular needs elsewhere. Well Steve what are you talking about? So we've had students who were into curling. We do not have a curling uh, space on campus. So there's a, a yet? local yet no probably the the one the one that people are pushing on is is uh, pickleball that's I guess yeah, the new craze the, right it yeah it's gotta have big. pickleball right we've had other students who are into equestrian okay so they're finding those needs off campus so it would look more like that the here your job at the institution is more probably finding opportunities for students who they're going to pursue in the community, but yet you're not trying to just fund with them and then pass that cost on directly to the student. Okay, let's talk real numbers. Say a listener out there is thinking, hmm, I should investigate this. Where where would you see the ballpark falling in terms of how much it could save if they went to an a la carte model? Well, there's numerous variables in that. So, you know, if you're going to live on campus, if you, well, if you have residential pieces in there. But some of the things that we're talking about, it could save you several thousand dollars a year. So if I'm going to a university and I say, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm non-traditional age or I've got other things I want to do. You know, what my share of some of those costs is probably, you know, I gave you a, you know, between three and $4,000 number, but some of that is going to be hard to strip away, but it's going to be somewhere in that, in that neighborhood. You know, several, you know, several thousand dollars. Sure. So it could be a good fit for a type of institution, maybe one that caters to non-traditional students, commuter students. Do you foresee that being how it could work? 
For sure, for sure. And I think in some ways we see that already in, you know, I think technical colleges, two-year colleges, schools like MATC don't have near these support services. I mean, they're, they're trying to look into the community. But on the other side is that's an institution where, you know, trying to go back and forth, that's an institution where students aren't nearly as engaged. And their retention is probably not as good. And their, you know, the student success is not as good. And so we might see a different problem come at student outcomes. I think so. You know, you're fixing one problem, but creating this other one. What about alumni engagement? Do you foresee this impacting how alumni feel about their experience if they graduate under an a la carte model? I think it could. And the reason why I say is I think alumni, especially those that are traditional in a traditional program, and things that they found very important while they were in college. And a lot of those are their affinity groups. And a lot of these affinity groups are what we're talking about. And the people that they meet through these pro- – now, they have faculty members that they, they connect with and that they, they stay with. Their academic program sometimes the same way. But let's not overlook that affinity group, the music group, the band group. They had an alumni uh, band for our, one of our basketball tournaments a couple of years ago. They had 100 people show up you know, the athletic programs, that often is where they they resonate. And I think that's, if we look at the schools that maybe haven't done that, you know, some of the proprietary schools, the tech schools, the two-year schools, those are schools that really, there's no such thing as an alumni. I mean, you don't don't look at a proprietary school and uh, University of Phoenix. They don't probably have an alumni office, right? They, maybe they do. There are people in a question, Dr. Taylor, yes, there's an alumni associate. No, but it's, it's not, you know, typically where people have their passion in. And that I think would have great impact. So what I, I'm just going to interject here. What I think you're saying is that while people might want the price tag of the frontier model, they really expect that delta level of service. So in the end, to have a full experience for some types of students, they, they really do want it all. They want the inclusive, probably. I think so. I think the students who are going to a residential four-year college, there's a certain sense of what they're expecting. And, and certainly as they shop, that they're they're figuring in that's what they want that's what they they want the price of the a la carte but they want the features of the of the all inclusive model all right well we're going to figure all this out by season 2 of this podcast we're going to figure out how to have both but for okay, now okay that's right that's right that's right okay so let me just kind of probe a little bit here if you had to change how you would fund certain type of st- services you mentioned wellness health counseling things like that could you change that other than by using students private insurance well, I mean, that's the obvious one. And you've seen us schools are dabbling with that a little bit. Our athletic training office is using a program through a third party that's helping us bill students' insurance. And, and there's more to it than that. It's, it's very beneficial to the students, helping us recover some costs for services. There's other creative things that we can do, and, and I'll, especially at a, at a teaching university that has different levels of students. So with counseling, you know, we have graduate level counselor, uh, counseling students that are non-traditional age. And so sometimes they can come in in their appropriate role, looking for clinical hours. You know, they don't have connection to our traditional students, so there's some opportunities for that. We've had some opportunities with some of our non-traditional uh, graduate uh, health programs, our PA program, our nurse practitioner program where students need clinical hours, and they come in and help serve our health center. Those are, those are opportunities that I don't think we've tapped enough. And it's kind of a win-win in some ways because these students need these clinical hours to, to finish their degree. It's close. It's convenient. 
we like the labor because it's it's cheap, okay, and it's good because it's, it's our programs are excellent. And we've started doing some of these things, and we'll need to continue doing these things in our current model. And it's you know just another way that you can maximize the resources that you have as well. The other things that we've done is we've tried to tap, tap and this really was, okay, we, we don't try to use this word as little as possible, the COVID word, but during COVID, what we saw, found is we had a lot of teaching faculty with clinical experience, and we started tapping their clinical experience. We've continued using some of our faculty's clinical experience in some of these areas as well. Some of them need to continue doing things to keep licensed. Some of them miss it. Some of them want to be helpful with them. We, we've used some pharmacists from our school of pharmacy to help us in our health center with prescribing mental health drugs, for instance. So that's, you know, I think the, the other approach, like in a nutshell is use the resources that you have on hand that you're not using because you think there's this line between academics and, and uh, student life or, you know, the clinicians and the academic let me come back to non-traditional students because we kind of have the separation between the two as we're talking about this, right? Traditional students may expect one level of service, but our non-traditional students, and by that I mean the type of student who maybe isn't full-time, maybe doesn't live on campus, maybe is just there for the education of the institution. How do you foresee the a la carte model working for that population? So if you have different programs or just different populations of students, how might schools kind of figure that out? I think uh, their base experience is, is perfectly set for this. A couple things that I think we're seeing with many of our non-traditional students is they're becoming more and more online. So students may never come to campus. They might only come to campus very infrequently. But what you would be able to do is offer them opportunities to engage in the campus as a student and use, have access to these resources as a student, whether they, they live just down the street or if they live, live a long ways away. We've experimented with some of those things with mental health. Mental health is very difficult uh, in servicing students from online because they can be from different states. And so we have issues of providing providers across state lines. So one of some of our grad programs, what we've started to do is using a a la carte model for some of our like health centers where you don't pay a standard health fee like our traditional undergrad students, but there's a fee to come. A usage fee. A usage fee. So you don't use it, you don't pay. You don't, yep, right, right. And so that's worked out pretty well. And then what you do is the fees are pretty small because they're across, you know, they're, they're across all students. So after the third visit, you paid what the fee would be and then you don't have to pay anymore. So, I mean, an example of we're going to, you're going to use it until you hit the threshold of what the mandatory fee would be for tertiary undergrads, and then, then you've made that, you've met your deductible it is, as an example of that. We also, a little bit different, but as, in servicing our students, we've, we've also tried to do a better job, and this is just, I think, trying to allocate your resources better. We've tried to use what we call an intake and triage route. And that means a student doesn't go to your most trained, seasoned, credentialed person to start with. Goes to someone who can look at that student's entire need set and direct them to what's most appropriate to them. And also being able to use that to non-traditional student who might be able to, to identify, oh yeah, you need counseling, but might be better served. We found four counselors in your community that might be better for you to use and be connected to and use your private insurance. Or sometimes, you know, if they're within states and, and there's not a licensing issue, we can even remote counsel a little bit with some of these students. We've not charged them yet, but that's an example of, again, very few students need that. Most of our non-traditional students are working, they have families, they're in and out. 
They come in, they do their thing, and they, they leave. They, they don't want clubs. They don't want orgs. They're here to get their degree. They're somewhat in a different phase. Many of them have previous education. They've got an associate's degree or they're, they're coming back for a master's degree. So the level of what they need is, is different. But yet still having those opportunities, hey, we service you, we provide these things for you, and if you need them, you know, we can maybe help you like the triage, but then we take you to the, the trough to drink the water, but the water might cost something. Understand. So I love everything what you're saying. I like the thoughtful analysis of like where it could work, where it might not work, what are some of the limitations of this kind of model. Let me just go in a different direction. You've been in student services a while now. You've been around the Concordia block for a long, long time. What are some of the services and activities you think are the most beneficial for students, even if it costs money and costs too much money? What would you say are the best student services out there for developing students? That's really tough because I think the best one is what the best one is for that student. And every student's different. And certainly for those traditional undergrad students in a, in a residential experience, what's not good is when they're sitting in their room and they're on technology and they go home every weekend. I guess all those, those things that you talked about, I think are great. Student government, clubs, orgs, intramurals, where I think maybe one that we're, we're missing out on is some of our educational programming that students don't want to participate in. So the, the other, the other so dynamic. the lecture series on XYZ. Uh, studying, life skills, you know, money management. Students, um, so in this whole dichotomy is you've got students that are choosing to participate in some things and choosing not to participate in other things. So we spend a lot of money in some of our social programming and they just don't attend. So we've had some things where we spent significant dollars in, in getting programming or speaker or some sort of event, and the participation rate is so low. But those who came, it was it's fantastic. So I tell this story when, when we get, and this is something I've I've really wrestled with is you know when I first in the in the office I get really upset. We spent two thousand dollars on this event and twenty people came. I go, wow, what did we do wrong? Well, I think about when I was a freshman a hundred years ago. Uh, I went to a test-taking seminar put on by one of our faculty members and was part of one of our football coaches who was a GA, his grad program. Well, they made us go. Of course. They made us go. But I will tell you, the things I learned in that session I used through through my doctoral work, right? It was fantastic. It was great. And I never would have gone if I wasn't forced to. So what's beneficial? I think everything has value. Everything, you know, fits what your needs are, okay? if you know, Because every student's different. You want to get them engaged. But I think the one that I think is most valuable is the one that's been left alone, that they didn't do. So if parents are, are, are listening is find out what's going on and make your kids go to things that they don't want to go to. Go to the, the fall orientations. I think Those, they had 18 years of that. That's right. Right. <laughs> they continue. The fall orientations are another ones that we spend a lot of money, time, and resources on. And sometimes, you know, critical. Getting that transition. Letting you know how to, how to navigate this thing. And uh, get you engaged and connected and friends and social networks. And then, you know, sometimes the participant rate is, is lower than we'd like. But that's, that, you know, that, that becomes a, one of the, I mean, you say, what's most important? I'm giving you 15. That Just something. Really I think yeah. that's what I'm yeah. hearing is, yeah. is, is if the yeah. students are participating in anything, that's good. And, and I think as we look at this population, 
of, of institution, this population of student. This is why this sort of model hasn't really caught on as much. Schools have done it to a smaller degree. I use laundry as an example, maybe, you know, cable television or maybe different types of meal plans, you know, are minor small things that we've, we've seen. But we've not seen the major shifts. We haven't seen the ones where it's, you know, the, the difference in cost could be, five, you know, $5,000, you know. You know, I, I think we're going to talk about this I think maybe in season two is this whole idea about in teaching instruction. You want a good faculty member, bad. You want a big class. You want a small class. Really having this layer of you know, one could argue, well, you're getting that based on the institution you go to, but even within that institution, where does that you know maybe the majors cost different? Uh, maybe all these these things, these variables, but we've wanted so hard to just keep it all because it's what we know. It gives access to that student, lets them roam, and there's not that like we said that differential and. You're right. The most important thing is what that student's doing. You bring up an interesting point that made me think about the level of transparency that might be expected in the future from prospective students and what, where exactly their money is going. And so it's, it's a point I want to maybe come back to in a future episode. We've already got plans for season two, season three, and, and beyond. But uh, as we're wrapping up here, I'd like to just kind of end with this question. What's your best advice for college leaders to operate a fiscally viable institution. It could be related to student services, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, I think I'm going to I'm going to put I guess my graduate instructor hat on and I think it's assessment. And assessment in higher ed we get caught up in assessment about, you know, what are students learning, what, you know, what are the effects of this, but really assessing the value. And that speaks to are you right sized or are you wrong sized? And I think a lot of times, you know, we have we have an assessment process that we're doing in student life and a lot of it's self-assessment. And, you know, I think sometimes there's some biased opinions and focuses on that and probably need some outside look. And the assessment has to look at, are you meeting the needs with the appropriate resources you have at hand? And you have to think globally, right? If one department is overstaffed and no one wants to say they're overstaffed, how do you draw those resources away? And the problem is sometimes it's human capital. No one likes riffing a position. But sometimes that's what we're talking about. My best advice is really assess, look at the value and the appropriateness of resources across the bigger division and where you need to shift things around. And it can be difficult because you've got five, six, seven, eight, ten departments that are all trying to do their best and understand that most people are working really hard and they don't just sit around doing nothing, but is what they're doing really the best value for that, that greater good. So that, that would be my, my best advice. Good advice for us, Steve. Thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing this conversation soon. Thank you so much, Sarah. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.